G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. So it'd be incredibly grateful if you could go to uh, the Apple Podcast Store or iTunes, Acast, or whatever platform you listen to this podcast, and, and leave us a review. Um, we got one recently from Faye Rawson. She said, uh, excellent for on-the-go revision for finals. Not quite Stephen Fry reading Harry Potter, but much more productive use of my time. Well, you know, I suppose that's uh, subjective. Objective, isn't it? Um, great audio quality for car journeys. We'll definitely continue to keep this up to date. Veterinary advances um, when I'm in first opinion. So that's good, and thank you for that. But um, please uh, uh, keep on leaving us reviews because that way it um, puts us higher up the, I suppose, the charts, as it were, and gets this information to people who uh, who want to listen to it. So thank you for that. So today, joining Brian and myself in the studio uh, is uh, Professor Adrian Boswood. Um, so many thanks, uh, Professor Boswood, for joining us in the studio. My pleasure. And uh, today what I, uh, I asked you to, to talk about would be uh, how, how to read a paper. Okay. Uh, so uh, so um, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily just throw this on you, but, um, but I, and, and I've seen a, a talk that you've given. In fact, I've seen a, a few talks given by different people about this because it's probably one, of the, probably one of the most important things that we do when we evaluate sort of evidence because I suppose that most of the information that we have um, that we, we read these days are probably from books or online platforms, but books are generally written by people that are normally invited to write a, uh, about the subject who are experts or considered experts in, in that field. Um, but normally that's not peer-reviewed. And so I suppose our, our main literature that we get from uh, from peer review is the, the, those that are, that are published in, in journals. So I suppose that we need to have a good understanding of how we actually should read those papers because a lot of the time it gets a bit laborious or people just want to hit the um uh the take-home message as it as it were so so maybe i could ask you about um how in general do you uh i suppose evaluate evidence or, or read uh, read papers um i think it it takes <clears throat> quite a while to um get good at reading papers critically um, and so it definitely is an acquired skill, but it's also a very important skill um, because increasingly um, the access to information um, is no longer privileged in that almost anyone can access information. And increasingly, I think what distinguishes someone as a specialist or as a professional um, is their capacity to interpret information critically and judge the quality of the source of, of information that they obtain. Um, and if you think of a very current example about the importance of quality of information, it's all of uh, the stuff about fake news, um, is that how, how can you distinguish a credible story or credible information from information that's absolute rubbish and is out there actually as disinformation? I wouldn't say that people necessarily attempt to publish fake news in the veterinary literature. Um, however, um, I think what it's much more important to be a critical recipient of that literature than simply to read it and believe it. So, yes, it's a very important skill. And so when you uh, evaluate um, a, an article, do you, do you have a, a, a similar approach? Do you, do you, I suppose 
because of your field in cardiology for the people that that, uh, that might not know that do you or do you think initially from the title of a, of a paper is this actually going to change what I do or is this in my interest or or do you do you actually do you scout through you know, the Journal of Veterinary Cardiology or Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine and think oh that looks interesting and um, delve further I think um Quite a lot of the papers that I now read in the greatest detail, um, I'm actually reading as a scrutineer rather than reading it <clears throat> in the literature. Um, there, however, there are papers that I'll read in the literature and sometimes papers in the human cardiology literature. Um, the So I, th I think um, I am... I, I am a critical <clears throat> recipient of the literature and perhaps even more critical given that I tend to read it from the perspective of a scrutineer. <clears throat> the, 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 I'm interested in paper. I think you make a, a key point there actually which is that when you're reading a paper first of all it has to be something that interests you and that is relevant to what you do and may potentially inform or change your practice. Um, and it's that sort of paper that's the paper that should undergo kind of the most detailed scrutiny because if it's something that challenges what you currently do or challenges the way that you approach a patient, you need to be convinced of the quality of that information before you change what you do. So, so you... And that do you find that there's not necessarily uh, a huge amount of papers that fall into that category in the veterinary literature? I think there are very few papers that do, to be honest. Um, the There are a lot of papers that I would say are in, in the literature are essentially descriptive, and they're often descriptive of um, individual cases or case series um, that may have been managed in a slightly unusual way or they're being described in terms of um, the outcomes of those cases but not necessarily in such a way that that information convinces you that you should change your practice. There, there are some papers and actually papers that I tend to not read when I look at them um, where, where case reports and case series are published because hey, look, here are some really unusual cases that I've seen. Um, aren't they cool because they're really unusual? And then I think to myself, well, if they're that unusual, I'm probably never going to see a case like that. Um, and so it's actually not of that much relevance to me. Um, what's much more likely to inform a change in my practice or to inform a change in in um, the practice of primary care practitioners, which is probably more important than informing the change of a specialist practice, um, are papers that change your approach to common diseases. And those are quite unusual. They don't come along very often, those kinds of papers. Why, why do you think that? Because those sorts of studies are difficult to do. They're difficult to do well enough to um, sort of challenge established norms um, or to make people change their habits because those are cases that have been managed in a particular way for a long period of time. So I think views tend to be quite entrenched and to change those views, things need to be really convincing. Because we don't have a, a similar thing, particularly, I suppose in this country as we do with GPs and, and NICE guidelines yeah. or a, a, a 
a central body, if you like, that, that's trying to look at evidence-based medicine and say what people kind of should be doing in certain situations in the in the medical terms. So I think that the RCBS knowledge might be trying to, you know, at least get some uh, evidence-based medicine out there and people to look at what knowledge gaps there are, what evidence there is to treat certain things, but it's not necessarily used as a repository for that uh, to change clinical practice. I don't think yet. I think that there are examples um, in the area of internal medicine and cardiology of where people have tried to come up with um, evidence-informed guidelines. Um, And so uh, ACVIM, for instance, published consensus statements on a few common diseases and um, effectively get a review uh, get a group of experts to review the evidence that there is an attempt to um, therefore agree on um, what is recommended as the ideal way of managing those patients and so there have been attempts I think part of the problem um, with comparing ourselves to organizations like NICE in the National Health Service is the paucity of good quality information to inform those guidelines um, that um, it doesn't take very much to get to a point in the management of a disease process where in effect experts don't agree because the evidence in the literature is not sufficiently convincing um, and so it's almost as though we need more evidence before we we need more convincing evidence before we can get to be genuinely evidence informed guidelines i think and uh, do, do you think that's uh, going to happen in the in the veterinary uh, industry in the in the future do you, do you, do, you, do you think we we know what we're trying to achieve but <clears throat> do you think um it's going to take a monumental or seismic shift for for globally vets to get their act together to um, um to work on i think studies studies can be done and we're learning more about um good quality study design to address specific questions and inevitably um the most convincing evidence comes from larger studies. Larger studies need to be multi-centre, and in order to get um, good multi-centre studies, we need a lot of people to agree on the question that we're trying to address. Um, and so, so it, it's almost as though the first thing that you need to do, and kind of bringing this back to talking about um, um, reading a paper, Actually, one of the most important things in a in describing a paper is to have a well-formed hypothesis that informs the study, which is something that's interesting and relevant. So you have to start with a common question, get everyone to agree that that's a question you want to try to answer, and then ideally design a study that answers that effectively. So I suppose that might take us into how you actually yourself look at a look at a paper. So if you if you've decided on a on a paper that you're interested in, is that one of the first questions you would ask yourself? So what is the aim or what is the hypothesis of this of this study? So how what is the question they're they're asking? Yeah, and so so if you if you if you look at the conventional structure of a paper, um, usually the aim or hypothesis of the study should be stated typically in the last paragraph of the introduction 
Um, and you, you may often get a clue as to what the hypothesis of the study is from the title, and that's going to be the bit that's kind of eye-catching. Um, but if you actually want to know precisely what is this study attempting to address, then look at that last paragraph of the introduction. Um, and then that, that sort of... If people want, you know, um, what is the reason for reading a paper? One of the reasons for reading a paper is to is that you care about the hypothesis in the study. You know, that's a relevant question to you on your in your day to day practice to know whether or not that hypothesis is proven or not. Um, and so you begin with that question. If you look at the question, you think, Do you know what, I really don't care about that, then don't read the paper. Um, if you if you look at a paper where the hypothesis is clearly stated and you think, oh, that's really interesting, I, want, uh, I wonder what they find, then read on. And are you quite systematic when you read a paper or do you, or do you jump to see if it hit certain notes that you want i suppose and just thinking about if you have an approach to a to an ecg you know is there a p wave for every qrs mm. is there a qrs for every p wave you know what's the heart rate do you, do you have a similar thing do you look at that hypothesis and then try and see what their answer is and then go back to the materials and methods or or I, do you do you, are you quite sequential i think um the, it's it's difficult to to read a paper without first reading the abstract. Um, um, and the abstract should adequately summarise most of the key information about the paper. Not all abstracts do, <laughs> but they should. Um, and so you kind of know what's coming when, when you're, you're looking at a paper, and you may already have looked at what the key conclusions of the study are. If that is the case, if you already know what the key conclusions are, then for me, really, the main question to read the entire paper through carefully is to see whether or not the methods of that paper and the results genuinely support the conclusions that are drawn. Um, because the, the, to read through the whole paper has got to be to say, wow, did they really prove that? And, and um, how well did they do it? Do their methods map well to their results? And do their results internally make sense? And so can they really genuinely draw that conclusion? Um, because th there's, um, there's quite a lot written about, about some, some of the um, curiosities of, the, of, of published literature. And the... One of the curiosities of published literature is, of course, that the more apparently groundbreaking a study is, the more likely it is to get published in a good journal. And so people often slightly overclaim in terms of the conclusions and results that they can draw from a paper. They want to claim as much as possible for novelty. And so they'll slip something in there into their conclusions and say, look what we've concluded, you know, gosh, um, we've cured cancer. Um, and what you need to look at is you need to say, have they really done that? Um, and the so so, yes, the conclusions give you a kind of a taster about what the, pa the paper should be about. But really, my question reading a paper in detail is to say are those conclusions supported by the way they conducted the study and or what would i draw different conclusions and when you look at the materials and, and methods adrian do you do you think about the cohort of patients that they've looked at in particular and as in is this going to help the patients that you deal with 
and then do you think about how they excluded patients or is that is that your main ideas with the with the with the method so how did they go about asking this question but how did they sort out the patients that they they looked at there are an enormous number of important things that go into the materials and methods um i i, I kind of feel Sometimes I feel sorry for the materials and methods in a paper, if you can feel sorry for a bit of prose, um, in that um, it's probably the least read, but the most important thing in any paper is the materials and methods, because how you design and conduct the study will feed directly into the conclusions that you can draw. Now, you ask specifically about what are the patients like in the study, and that is definitely one of the key things. So if you are a practitioner reading a paper, and if you want to know, um, is this going to be relevant to my daily practice, then really that comes down to, do I see patients like those described in this study? So firstly, do I see patients like this? And secondly, can I identify patients like this that are described in this study? So I think that the the inclusion criteria for what gets a patient into a study is very, very important because that defines the subset um, of animals to which you can apply the results. Um, so it's all about how you define that group and how that group um, is reflective of um, patients in general practice. I agree with you because I think um, you, when you've given a talk before, you've highlighted one journal that actually has the materials and methods in a in a smaller <laughs> font, yes. which which almost makes you subconsciously try to try to ignore that because if yeah. it's smaller, maybe it's not necessarily worthy of your attention. And and absolutely, I think I, I read now more the materials and methods rather than the results because the results should should clearly just state what they found. But yeah. it's really what are they trying to look at. Yeah. almost more important than what they found because that should be a more of a binary thing you can't you shouldn't be able to fudge results as it as it were yeah but you can capture that data differently or not necessarily i suppose fudge is, is incorrect but you can um you know look at a subset of patients uh, and exclude maybe the the sicker ones or the ones that were going to get well no matter what um in in a in a in a fair way but still your results might have um quite elaborate conclusions as a as a result so you need to know what exactly you know what patients you're yeah i, I think it, there've been a number of examples um and i can draw on examples from the medical literature just because there's more literature um that there have been a number of examples of studies um where the way in which they've included and or excluded patients has directly affected the applicability of those results to large populations in, uh, of human patients. And so, for instance, if you take um, studies that look at human patients with heart failure, they may exclude patients over the age of 70 or exclude patients with comorbidities. Um, and then when you go out and look at the general population, you say, well, actually, the majority of heart failure patients are over 70 and do have comorbidities. And so what you're doing is you're describing, say, the effectiveness of a particular intervention in an, um, a, a non-representative population. 
And so what you can't safely do is extrapolate those results to patients who do have comorbidities or are over the age of 70. And if all you did was read the conclusions of the study, which is that drug X is fantastic for the treatment of heart failure, you wouldn't necessarily appreciate the restricted population of patients to which that conclusion applies. And that all can be, to some extent, hidden um, in the materials and methods of the paper. Um, and so that's what you've really got to look at. Um, there are um, sort of guides that you can access that will point out for you key things that should be there in the materials and methods. And so there are sources of information that you can go to. If you're first starting to read papers critically, then there are sort of lists of things that you could look at and say, well, do the authors describe this? Do the authors describe factors A, B, C and D in, in, in how they designed their study? And, and having those sorts of guides can really be helpful. There are also guides, um, and effectively you can use them in the same way, that, that there are guides to what sh an author should put into a paper. Um, and so if you look, for instance, at papers that describe um, clinical trials, there's a statement called the consort statement which lists about 25 different things that should be um, in, a, in a paper describing a clinical trial. There are also um, ones, there's something called the STARD um, uh, statement which is about studies to do with diagnostic accuracy. So if I come up with a new diagnostic test. Um, and interestingly when you look at those lists of things that should be in a paper, the majority of the things that should be in a paper should be in the materials and methods. Um, there are relatively few, if you, if you look at the sections, you know, the, what should be in an introduction to a paper, there's about two key things. What should be in the materials and methods, there's about 17 or 18. What should be in the results, there's about five. And what should be in the discussion, there's about three. And so the 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 real meat of a paper, apologies to any vegetarians, but um, is in is in the materials and methods. Yeah, far more eloquently than I could have uh, <laughs> put. But uh, but excellent. See, see the the couple of things in the introduction would be would be the aim, I suppose, that the, the lack of of uh, of um, the evidence gap. I exactly. The, I mean, what the introduction. What I tell to people when they're writing a paper is what the introduction should do is kind of set the context, set the, the landscape of what is known so far that you sort of lead the reader to wanting to answer your question. <laughs> um, and, and so it's, it's along the lines of this is what we know, this is what we don't know, wouldn't it be great to know this? Um, and that that's kind of all that you really need to put in there in, in the um the what well, i like a, a a really sort of punchy introduction that that has relatively little detail in it um i think too many introductions particularly for 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 um authors um starting out is that their introductions seem to somehow merge into a literature review um if you want to read a review go and read a review. Uh, what I want to know are the facts pertinent specifically to this study that lead to the hypothesis or the aim of the study being a logical thing to want to know. Um, and that's all that really needs to be in the introduction. What's already known? What isn't known? What's the aim of this study? 
And, uh, and when we're looking at the materials and methods, I suppose that uh, it, it's probably rude not to not to put in statistics uh, into that <laughs> conversation as well. Yeah. And uh, and I imagine that's where you get a massive fall off. Uh, and and in, I can put my hand up and say that uh, I, I'm one of those people that assume that they've got it right. Yeah. The the um. Well, I'll hold my hand up and say. I'm I'm a kind of a self-confessed, um, almost statistics nerd, um, and and but the the stati- if, if if you look at proportions of a paper that will be read in detail, again probably the the the, the genuine sort of orphan bit of the paper is the statistical methods because most people just leave that and and as you say they take it as read that if it's been peer-reviewed in a decent journal you'd hope that the statistics make sense actually the number of papers where the statistics are a little bit off or inadequately described there's a lot that actually get published in the peer-reviewed literature but that's just the way it is the i what i say what i try to encourage people to do if they can is not go into the detail of what the statistical um, analysis is, what the mathematics is, but to try to think what is the question that the author is attempting to answer by performing the statistical test. Because statistical tests are there really to answer very simple questions, like, for instance, are these two groups the same in terms of their age or are these two groups the same in terms of their outcome um, and th- those are simple questions which are addressed typically by performing complicated mathematical analyses and what you need to understand as a reader is what question the author is attempting to answer um, and other, unless you're a statistical nerd, if it's in the peer-reviewed literature, you then have to probably take it on faith that they've done a, approximately the right statistical tests. Um, you know, the, 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 most of the big errors in statistical testing should be picked up at the peer-review stage. Yeah, absolutely. Do, I, I imagine they, if you're reading a lot of uh, human literature as, as well, that when you're talking about big data or, or or big numbers, then you will have statisticians disagreeing with each other about what is the most appropriate statistical test. Um, they might do. Mm. Um, it depends, I guess, on the complexity of the study. Um, there, there are a lot of types of study which I think are essentially quite formulaic where it's really very obvious how the statistical analysis for the main conclusions of the study should be performed Uh, and actually you get to the point where if you read enough papers if you if you come across a paper that uses a really novel type of statistical analysis you have to ask yourself why did they choose such a novel type of analysis Is it that they're genuinely coming at things from a completely novel perspective, which might be really interesting from a methods point of view, or is it because they've chosen this technique because the technique that they tried first didn't work, Um, which is always something you have to be a little bit suspicious of when people are using unusual methods of analysis. I mean, just as a for instance, and because I'm familiar with um, studies that analyse clinical trials, um, that 
essentially the, 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 the important outcomes in a clinical trial are, are your two groups balanced at baseline when they're recruited to the study? And that's just a whole load of either you know, things like t-tests, for instance, or chi-squared, depending on what you're comparing between the two groups. So you're comparing two groups. And then were your groups different with respect to the important outcome in the study? And that's usually, if it's a time-to-event study, a Kaplan-Meier analysis and a log-rank test. That's it. Now, there are a lot of complicated studies, that, additional analyses you can do, like Cox proportional hazards analysis and those sorts of things, but those are all in very standard papers that describe clinical trials. So it should be, if it's a standard type of study that you're doing then there's already a formula of how that should be analyzed um, and so you kind of say to yourself have they do they appear to have used fairly uh, appropriate analysis for this yes they do that's fine um, um, I think if you're coming across stuff that you've never encountered before um, either it's a really novel study design um, or they might not be doing it appropriately Fair enough. And uh, we, I suppose so if we're talking about the different studies that we uh, normally come across in the in the veterinary literature, I suppose the majority are going to be retrospective studies rather than rather than prospective studies in 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 essence. And as far as clinical trials go, um, again, that's a, a massive sort of drop off, isn't it? Hmm. And when you when you reading a retrospective study, do you think that it ever answers a question or does it more make you think of more questions to ask? I suppose, does it does it more drive a hypothesis or lead you to ask more questions? Or do you find it that can change what you do? I think um, one of the important things to consider is what what are referred to as levels of evidence. And the some evidence of um, it, it, well, some evidence is always better than none. Um, and if there is no evidence yet in the literature of the effect of a particular drug or, or um, the outcome of a particular surgical procedure, for instance, and the first description is a retrospective case series, for instance, even without a control population, then when that gets into the literature, that's the best that we've got. If the question then is, is that enough to inform a change in practice? There's a certain element of subjectivity about that because you've got to ask then about the quality of the study and quality of the conclusions that can be drawn and everything else. But if that's the best evidence that there is um, and that could inform a change in practice until some better evidence comes along. Now, that better evidence may never come along um, or it may not come along for 10 or 15 years. So those case series can still be very informative, but they would ultimately be trumped by a well-conducted prospective study. So if you read those kinds of case series and retrospective case control series and those sorts of things, um, it's all about the validity of the conclusions that can be drawn. And um, I can think of a current example of a paper that I've read recently where the conclusions were this drug might have an effect. 
Um, and I think that's a really nice conclusion. It might have an effect. We don't know for sure. And then you would go on to say, you know, future studies, if this, if these conclusions were borne out by a prospective study, then we could genuinely draw the conclusion that this drug works. Um, so the, that, that's an example I was talking earlier about people being tempted to overclaim in the results of studies. Um, if you were to do a retrospective study, not particularly well controlled or using historical controls or whatever, and then you conclude this drug works, um, that's probably overclaiming. Um, if you say there's some evidence to suggest that this drug might work on the basis of these data, um, there th th that's saying, yeah, okay, it might work. And if there are no other drugs in that circumstance that have that effect in that population, then great, maybe we should try it. But the, a higher level of evidence might subsequently come along. Some of that is, is how the papers are, are, are written or, or worded, aren't they? So when people yeah. say about there's a statistical difference or it suggests or yeah. you, and, and they can draw you into really misinterpreting what, what is written or, or yourself making false conclusions about overstating uh, what, you're, what you're reading um, because of, uh, of the language not necessarily being uniform would that would that be fair the when in the scrutineering process um and and so both papers that i've published in um what scrutineers have said and asked me to change and similarly papers that others have published that i've scrutineered often it does come down to disagreements over individual words in conclusions of what actually can be claimed what can't be claimed what's kind of over claiming and sometimes that there there does need to be an element of compromise in that process once it gets into the published literature um it's kind of a um you, you, it's it's a bit like the analogy of taking of of opening pandora's box it's like once that information's out there you can't bring it back again um, and the the so so you have to be very careful about what gets into the peer-reviewed literature because once it's out there, many people will take that as being truth, um, and um, so be careful what's written and be careful what you let through in the peer review process. That's, uh, um, that's a very 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 fair comment. So, so the peer review process, I suppose, for people that might not uh, um, understand how that how that how that works, would you mind? briefly explaining how peer review process works. Yeah, well, typically what happens is, so first of all, I'll describe it from, from an author's perspective, um, is that you submit a, an article to a journal, a peer-reviewed journal, and what that journal will usually do is allocate that article to at least two reviewers to go through the article in some considerable detail um, and then you will get the comments back from those reviewers um, and you have to address those comments to the satisfaction of the editor of the journal before your paper can be published. Now, the in my experience of peer review is that usually a paper is improved considerably by going through the peer review process in that um, what reviewers do very well is that they point out to you either 
where because of your enthusiasm for your own data you've overclaimed things or where you've missed out important details or where um, you're not quite clear in terms of the way you state things in your conclusions for instance there's a great thing that all people do it which is they write what they think explains something but they don't do it very clearly because they know what they mean what you have to accept is that your reader does not know what you mean and it's your job to explain things clearly and so the peer review process often results in a considerable improvement in in a manuscript before it gets published which is great and and usually there's a to and fro um, of typically two reviews before an article finally gets through into the review process and so um, you'll get some reviewers comments you'll act on those you'll send it back to the journal they send it out to the reviewers again and the reviewers say you know pretty much done but change this this and this and and then your paper gets published um, and sometimes you will have a disagreement with reviewers. Sometimes the journal will not consider your manuscript worthy of publication. Um, and the um, best thing to do is count to 10 uh, um, and reflect on life and those sorts of things. And then say, OK, do I submit it to another journal? Do I just not publish this particular piece of work? Whatever. Um, so that, that the, peer, the reviewers really are the gatekeepers of the quality of journals and actually um, they give their time for free um, they don't make any money out of it um, and it's a it's a real um, it's a fit at times it can be quite an onerous responsibility and so you have to be very grateful for the input that people put into things and it's, it's one of those things that people consider it kind of an academic responsibility I think if you publish you should review as well because it's all the give and take so then looking at things from a reviewer's perspective I know well no I think I know for a fact um, I have become a far better author because of the fact that I've reviewed a lot of manuscripts because what you do is you see the common mistakes that people make um, you begin to read from a much more critical perspective you start to understand the importance of explaining things in a paper um, and so um, I probably review maybe a paper a month maybe a paper every couple of months um, and actually in many cases really enjoy that process because of the fact that it makes me much more critical and so from my perspective as a reviewer what will happen is a journal editor will send me an article say could you review this I'll review it and I try to be a constructive reviewer which is you know have you thought about this could you do this I don't think this is quite appropriate maybe you should change this and um, with a view to trying to make the paper a better paper there are some papers that you get sent and they are <laughs> it's when the kindest thing um, is just to reject it where this paper's going nowhere this paper this isn't going to be of an adequate quality to get published um, and you recommend rejection but much more often what you recommend as a reviewer is you recommend either uh, um, major modification or minor modification to a manuscript um, and then it may come back to you for a second review and then it gets into the literature and 
I, I, I like that process. I review it. I view it and my contribution to it as being someone who can improve the quality of the final product, which is ultimately read by other people. And also, as I said, the, the gatekeeper to make sure that the the claims that are made by papers are supported by the data in the paper. So m- most uh, journals have a policy that the reviewers are normally blinded. Sometimes mm. the actual the authors are, are unblinded to, to the reviewers. And I suppose that in uh, a lot of cases that is meant to protect both both parties, mm. so there's no no bias, whether whether uh, um, for, for whether that's positive or, or negative, and um, and I understand in in other um, in other fields, not necessarily in, in medicine, that the reviewing process is is much more open and collaborative, particularly say uh, I believe in the sciences as as physics and and maths, so they're kind of a, a collaborative process. Do you think that that might benefit more or do you, do you think that that's actually quite challenging to achieve in the in the veterinary world um i do think that there used to be an inequality in because it used to be that a lot of journals the reviewers knew who the authors were but the authors didn't know who the reviewers were um and in some ways that's slightly um i think that's unkind <laughs> the Many journals now try to run a double-blind review process where the review, the reviewers don't know who the authors are and the authors don't know who the reviewers are. Um, it's quite often the case that there are little giveaways if you know enough in the area in which you work that you can kind of guess who the authors are. What I try to do is approach it more from a collaborative point of view that I wouldn't mind if the authors found out who I was. Because the what I would like to think is that I don't put anything in a review that I wouldn't be happy to say to that person's face. Um, there have been examples of people who've received very critical reviews, reviews that are a little bit too personal, um, and where people have 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 yeah, historically perhaps hidden behind the anonymity of the peer review process. Um, and I don't think that's very good. So what, when I'm writing a review, I think to myself, um, would I mind someone saying this to me? And would I, would I be bothered if the person who I'm writing this about, if the author that I'm writing this about, found out that I had written it? Um, and if I can be satisfied that I wouldn't mind someone saying it to me and that I wouldn't mind saying it directly to the author, then I think that's okay. Um, you do get to the point sometimes, and there have been a few manuscripts, where you put so much effort into telling the authors how to write it, you think, do you know what, you should put me down as a blooming co-author. <laughs> um, the, 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 those are the ones where there's a real labour of love. Um, fortunately, not that often. Um, but if you take if you take too collaborative approach, then actually what you do is you become a co-author. Fair enough, and that's probably probably help helpful very much to the people who are writing the the, uh, the the journal trying to get that published. But but as you as you write, maybe maybe not necessarily helpful to the author. Well, yeah, indeed. But uh, but I'm sure that the readers uh, like that. When when you're uh, I suppose we're jumping a bit all, all over the shop, but I was going to ask you about when you have a, a, a read of a dis- discussion. What are there are there certain things that you <laughs> always uh, always expect, or you or is it just are you, are you interested in how they present their their conclusions what well, one thing that i urge people to do i mean first of all reading a whole paper 
is to have the time to do that is a luxury. I appreciate that, which is one of the reasons why a lot of people scan papers, they read abstracts, um, or they may just jump to the discussion. But if you have the time, um, the, the next few papers that you read, I suggest you do the following. Read the introduction, read the materials and methods, read the results, and stop. And at the end of the results, bullet point what you think are the main conclusions that can be drawn from those results and what you would put in the discussion if you were writing the paper. And the reason that I say that is the, the, with the sort of the convention of how a paper is written, um, you've really got four sections. So the introduction is, as I said before, about the background. Materials and methods is what we did. Results is what we found. And discussion is what it means. And it's only in the discussion that the author is allowed to bring in their interpretation of the data. And you may interpret that data differently. It may mean something entirely different to you. It may be that the main conclusions that you draw are different to those of the author. And if you go straight in to read the author's discussion, what the author is likely to do is to convince you of their view of the results. And in fact, I've got to the stage now where quite often I don't even read the discussion. Um, I read the materials and methods and the results and I think, okay, that's interesting, and draw my own conclusions from the paper. And sometimes I don't even come back and read the discussion. Um, uh, the, so the discussion is where the author is allowed to tell you what they think. Do you do that, Adrian, because you don't want to be biased by their thoughts? Or, or is, it, is, there, is there something else, or do you find it frustrating if you disagree with, with that? Sometimes the latter. Sometimes, I, sometimes people... Sometimes the discussion in papers is too long. Or it, it, the, generally speaking, if you've got someone new to writing and if they write a manuscript that's too long, the two places to look are cut a whole load of stuff out of the introduction and cut a whole load of stuff out of the discussion. And, and um, sometimes the discussion is just a not very altered reiteration of the results with a little bit of commentary. Um, and so, so it can be quite boring sometimes. Um, the so I, th I think a discussion should be fairly, again, fairly punchy and fairly concise. Um, just to give you an example, <clears throat> I this isn't about a manuscript, but it is about an approach to to, to a paper that um, I was recently supervising a final year student on their project, <clears throat> and the student emailed me um, in a little bit of a flap, going, "Oh." I don't really know how to approach writing my discussion. Um, and I said, OK, um, well, we can meet to discuss that. But before we do, why don't you just bullet point five things that you sh think should be in the discussion and then get back in touch with me about it? Um, and I got an email the next day from this student and she said, I did the five bullet points and now I know exactly what needs to go into my discussion so we don't need to meet. Um, and the so that's the thing is sit down don't write a rambling stream of consciousness about your results but say these are the th these are the key points probably put them in order in which you think your re that are of importance to your reader 
And typically, the first paragraph of the discussion should should relate directly back to whether you have proven or disproven your hypothesis. And then a couple of other little interesting spin-offs from your study, maybe, and leave it at that. So, so what are the key messages that, that an author wants to get across? Those should be in the discussion. Excellent. Um, can I ask you, or maybe, maybe maybe nothing actually comes to mind, but maybe you could maybe you could tell me later and I could put it in the show notes of a, of a paper that you've recently read that you thought, oh, that's pretty pretty good. You can't mention your own paper. That's, uh... <laughs> um, I, I think the, the studies that tend to impress me the most now are often drawn from the human literature but um, i think i've i've slowly morphed over the years um into um someone more interested in kind of epidemiology and study design or should i say as interested in epidemiology and study design as i am in um actually the results in terms of how they get applied to my daily practice so papers that i read where i think wow that's a really interesting paper um are often some of the papers in some of the good human journals um and therefore i tend to be almost more impressed by them um sticking to the conventions of writing a paper and doing it well than i am necessarily by reading a paper that sort of fundamentally changes my my clinical practice um so i i can't necessarily pick specific examples but um i could um, come up with a couple that maybe you could link to the podcast and people could download and have a look at but they might find them a little bit um um unrelated to their direct daily practice yeah, I, th- I think that that makes sense. I mean, we can all we can all aspire, and I suppose at the, at the start we talked about um, maybe asking the questions that people want to know in in practice, which is really the the main thing, rather than um, writing the questions that maybe we find interesting in our in our little niche environments of of what we're what we're happy and comfortable to to deal with. So, do you think that that is something um, the profession needs to grab hold of? That maybe more of a you know, national institutions in countries to to try and encourage answering those those questions and do you think that we will um and now there's uh different coding sort of used in computer-based systems that maybe we m- might have an approach to to try and grab that big data and and uh think about asking those questions the, the two two slightly separate issues and uh, um, there uh, one of them is how can we address what we think are the most relevant questions. And the way I think that that tends to be done in the human field is by having big centralised funders of research who fund research into the relevant questions that will have the biggest impact. And I think one of the challenges that we have in the veterinary field is that there aren't any comparably wealthy organizations that are willing to fund those big multi-center studies so um so driving that agenda along there isn't really sort of a, a centralized way in which that can be done effectively the going to address the second question about big data um everyone 
seems to think at the moment that big data and data analysis is going to answer all of our questions. Um, and I, I'm just a little bit hesitant about anything when everyone thinks it's the next big fix, because I'm not sure that it is. Um, what big data can probably do is help us to describe better some of the things that are currently done. So big data from the point of view of, you know, observational studies, fantastic. You know, big, and observational studies can be brilliant. You know, they, they, there are some really um, key groundbreaking observational studies um, that, that are... So I'm not saying that those are all bad. But actually, if we're looking at studies that are attempting to address things like questions of efficacy of medication, um, that's much, much more difficult to do without things like blinding and randomization and all of those sorts of things. That, that, that the difficulty is um, where you've got open-label administration of medication that's been prescribed by veterinary surgeons, that there's always the question, why did they get the drug in the first place? And are there factors that are confounding the outcome in those patients, which we're not measuring and controlling for adequately? So can we really draw those conclusions? The other thing about big data is that ultimately what you get is this sort of regression to the mean where you're describing small changes in such huge populations that it may not be genuinely um, applicable in a an individual patient circumstance because there's so much variation in in the background in in the data um, so I think we have to be a little bit careful with with big data um, it can help us with some things and there are great examples of, um, of vet compass for instance and other resources where it's been very useful descriptively but it's much more difficult to do something prospectively so will it do, do you think that certain aspects of big data would actually um, inform us a little more of the the right questions to to ask yes i think that's true i mean the, the, again if we talk about retrospective studies um, or studies of existing practice as coming up with interesting hypotheses um, then that, that that would be really good let me let me give you a, a concrete example and this is from a study that um, we that I've recently um, helped supervise a PhD student on um, and we were looking at outcome in patients with heart disease um, and when you look at various different factors that predict outcome in patients with heart disease, one of the worst possible things that can happen, apparently, to a patient with heart disease is that you give them diuretics. Because funnily enough, all of the ones on diuretics die in the near future, and very few of the ones that are not on diuretics die in the near future. Now, of course, that's what's called reverse causation which is the fact that they've got bad disease means they need to go on to diuretics. You're measuring an indirect effect. It's not that the diuretics kill the patients, it's that the patients have got disease bad enough to need diuresis. And, and so you could very easily end up with a kind of a backward conclusion, which is diuretics are harmful. Um, so I think you have to be very careful to merely describe what's already happening and be careful about confounding factors like in that example I've given disease severity.
I think there was one um, one of uh, David Broadbelt's papers on anesthesia, and, and I think in looking at cats, and I think cats that had fluids are more likely to have complication in anesthesia. Yeah. But then you have to ask the question: Why did they need fluids? Exactly. So, so in, in, in that in that big study, so you can't, you you know, yeah, absolutely. Because if you if you drew a conclusion from that and said, oh, it's really bad to give cats fluids when they're being anesthetized, it might actually, of course, have been that um, even more of the cats would have died had they not had. Fluids. Um, and so, yes, that, that's the sort of thing that actually needs to be addressed in a prospective way in balanced groups. De -dum, de -dum, de -dum, hypothesis generating. And, and obviously, you've had a, a, a I wouldn't say a whole career because that means you're coming to the end of your career <laughs> or anything like that. But you, you've, you've definitely had a, a long time in academia, and you've you've spent a long time reviewing papers. But if you were uh, going to start off and trying to have a better understanding of how to read a paper, I know that there's certain information. I think you, even actually on the RCVS website about uh, evidence-based medicine. But is there a, is there a, a book or or anything that you um, or something to to help guide someone? actually reading um the, there there are two books that um yeah i've come i've cut i've i've dipped in and out of several books on um study design and several books on statistical analysis over the years and there are two books that have kind of grabbed me and i've read them cover to cover and they've changed what i do and i've recommended them to multiple other people um there's one book um, which is a relatively short book, very good, and all of the examples in it are drawn from the medical literature, which is called something like um, Statistical Analysis and Study Design, and it's written by a guy called Mitchell Katz, K-A-T-Z. Anyone who wants to understand in a non-mathematical way the reasons for performing particular statistical tests and also um, um, how to approach prospectively designing a study should read that book. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, Bold. Th th indeed. Um, there's also a study which is a brilliant uh, a book, brilliant book, um, by, called um, something like Clinical Epidemiology and Evidence-Based Practice. Um, one of the co-authors is a guy called Dave Sackett, um, who is sort of one of the... Uh, um, the gurus of evidence-based medicine and it's um, an account of how and why to design clinical trials in a particular way so it's also all about study design but it's very readable it uses very good examples and it's packed full of excellent advice um, and uh, I've used that on occasion in conducting clinical trials effectively as a how-to guide um, and it's it's kind of it's that good. Um, so those two books um, are well worth having a look at. I'm sure that you know that other titles are also available. I'm sure, um, but those are the two that have really influenced what I do, and that I regularly recommend to other people. Well. Excellent. And uh, unfortunately, we're sort of coming to the end of our, our time here. So uh, I'd just like to uh, thank you very much for a, uh, a, a snapshot in um, and, uh, and probably jumping all over the shop about how to how to read a paper. And I'm sure this will probably well, I hope this will uh, make people uh, think a little bit more about the papers that they're, they're reading or, or even go to the literature and, and have a read of that, which I which I think is. Uh, very important rather than just taking someone's word for it it's good to try and evaluate the evidence yourself and, and work out um, whether whether it is worth changing your, your practice and the patients that you see so thank you very much Adrian for your time
My pleasure. So we'll wrap it up there, and thanks again for, for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way we won't even have to worry about missing your podcast. So if you could leave us a five-star review uh, on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great. So don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or others, anybody will do. And we'll place some show notes on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine, and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.